Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Japhat, uh, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them 
and boiled their flesh with the yolks of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after, after Elijah and assisted him. The prophet Elijah um, is prophesying judgment in God's people, and it's a kind of relentless task. It's dark, dark times. It's dark, dark times. And yet there's this wonderful breakthrough in the chapter before, and I'll mention that again later. And then he just kind of hits a brick wall of obstinacy or apostasy against the Word of God. And he really is a broken man. And he's afraid of his life, losing his life. And he, he, he goes off and he, 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 he's deeply heartbroken because God's honor has been uh, forsaken. He's jealous for God's glory, God's honor. And then God encourages him and he takes him or encourages him to go to a mountain called Horeb, which is the same word for Sinai. He takes him to a mountain, takes him up that mountain where there's wind earthquake and fire and this breath or small voice. Now, that's what goes on in that passage we read. I want you to go back in your Bibles to appear before this in history, Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Now, this is uh, quite a long time before, but uh, almost certainly when God took Elijah in 1 Kings up that mountain, uh, he wanted Elijah to remember this. And when God takes up, us up the mountain with Elijah, remember 1 Kings is a history book, but also a sermon. It's kind of preaching to us. We're meant to have, I think, this passage in our minds. Exodus chapter 19, reading at verse um, 16. Just a short passage. Um, Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. This is Sinai, the same mountain that Elijah is up in Kings. A very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now, it's very similar to what Phil uh, read. And just glance down to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God speaks. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then I want you to remember these words and tuck them away in your minds. God's words. For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. On Sinai, in Exodus, fire, wind, earthquake, God speaks and God says, I am jealous for my honor, for my glory. And now in 1 Kings, Many 
many generations later, Elijah is taken up on the mountain, and there is fire and wind and earthquake, the same mountain, and we get this breath or voice from God. Now, that's what's going on, and I hope that helps us uh, get into uh, the passage. Now, inside the service sheet, you'll see uh, just two headings. Uh, They're a little long, almost as long as Andy's were this morning, but not quite. Number one, the darkness, discouragement, and I was searching for a D but couldn't find it and went for a C, complexity of apostasy in the church. Now, you see where we're going with this. Whether it's the people of God then, Israel, or the people of God today, the church, there are differences, of course, big differences. Jesus has come, but they lived under a covenant. We live under a covenant. We had communion this morning, the words of communion. This is the blood of the new covenant. That means relationship between God and us. We live under a covenant. We are the people of God. And if the state of the people of God then, if you said to Elijah, what is it like to be a believer back then, he would have said, it's dark, it's discouraging, and it's complex. And what's it like for believers in this part of the world today? Well, it would be fair to say that there is darkness, there is discouragement, and there is complexity. Now, the period we are in in history in 1 Kings is the period of the monarchy or the period of the kings. And uh, there were some high points in the time of the monarchy. Uh, David, his rule was a high point. Solomon, his son, was a high point. But there were some really low points, like this point in the narrative, chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, of 1 Kings. And I guess the overall trend was a downward uh, spiral, a divided kingdom, and ultimately the conquest of each part of the kingdom by the superpowers of the ancient world. And if we read on into 2 Kings, we'd read of how uh, Israel falls to Assyria and then Judah falls to Babylon, the events of the exile. So uh, it's pretty dark. Dark times, discouraging times for those who are faithful, and complex times, what is God doing? Now, at this particular point where we are in 1 Kings 19, in Israel's history, in the history of the people of God, it is a particularly bleak time. It's a cheery sermon tonight, isn't it? Well, it's real, isn't it? It's real. It's the time of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And Ahab's the king, his wife is Jezebel, and Elijah is God's voice to the people. And Ahab's a bad king. He's a weak king. He does not lead God's people faithfully. He did not rule over them under God. He did not set them a godly example. He did not call them to live in accordance with God's covenant. And he had married Jezebel. 
she was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, next door to Israel. She married uh, Ahab. Ahab married her. He should not have done so. It was against God's law. It was a a political alliance, I guess. And uh, as soon as he married her, she made arrangements to have her own priests. Uh, Apparently, uh, I read, 850 of them to look after her. And Jezebel had a, a fanatical devotion to uh, Baal worship. And alongside that, she was, uh, and we read this from elsewhere in 1 and 2 Kings, a pretty forceful character. As Andy uh, said last week, she wore the trousers in the marriage and she wore the trousers in the palace. And uh, if we go forward, we won't get as far as this in 2 Kings. Her demise Um, She ends up being thrown out of a window by some of her servants, which is a little bit of a sticky end. But just before she does so, she insists to have half an hour or so so she can go to her private chamber and put on her makeup before she's thrown out of the window. And I don't know what you make of that, but it does say to me that she's a pretty strong-minded lady. Strong-willed. And of course, she influenced Ahab and all over Israel, all over Ahab's rule, was a divided loyalty, a divided heart between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the pagan deity. And that's the context, the blackness into which Elijah the prophet was sent and spoke. And he spoke pretty much a message of judgment. His wasn't a cheery ministry because the days were dark. Now, what about the state of the church today? What is the temperature of apostasy? Now, apostasy simply means God's people rejecting God's word or God's people living with a divided heart. So, if you were to take an apostasy thermometer... Yeah, and plunge it into the church in the world today, what would the temperature read? And say uh, uh, faithfulness would be a low reading and apostasy would be a high reading. Now, if you plunge that thermometer into South America, it's really striking when Moira was with us a few weeks ago. She said the big problem in South America is finding people who aren't Christians to speak to. 40% or so of the country are Christians. And yes, there are all sorts of problems about teaching them. But think of South America today. 40% of the equivalent of the population of this city would have been in churches hearing the gospel. Imagine that in Edinburgh. Just imagine that. If you dip the apostasy thermometer into South America, it's a pretty low reading. If you dip it into parts of Africa or parts of Asia, there are wonderful things going on. If you want to see what apostasy looks like in the global church, if you want a high apostasy reading on your thermometer, then look at Europe. Europe is the black spot missionary-wise in the world today. We don't believe that 
or feel it should be because once it wasn't. But if you read any global analysis of the world, Europe will be the black spot or as black as other black spots. So where did the great wave of rationalistic liberal theology come from? Germany. Most of the major denominations in our country are going through or have gone through a period of apostasy. Most of the big church denominations have retreated away from God beyond even having a divided heart, having a heart that is against God and His Word. There is life in Scotland spiritually, but there is a lot of rebellion and rejection of the authority of the Bible. Now, back to 1 Kings, this black time then. In the black time then, there was, and Andy um, helped us see this last week. Andy or Sam, I can't remember which one of them was preaching. They're both great. Last Sunday night, there was an astonishing breakthrough, chapter 18. Yep, an astonishing breakthrough. Light coming like a kind of shearing bolt of, into the darkness. These astonishing events of chapter 18 in 1 Kings, where the prophets of Baal are gloriously defeated. Elijah challenges them and he says, Look, you prophets of Baal, there's an altar. Call down fire from your God. But nothing happened. Nothing. And then Elijah calls to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and God sends fire onto the altar. You could not have a more powerful demonstration of the sovereignty of God than that. The fire of God came, and then rain came as a further sign. And at the end of chapter 18, Elijah is on top of the world, and he ran... We have some runners in Chalmers here. We have some long-distance runners in Chalmers here, some very fast long-distance runners. And Elijah ran all the way to Jezreel. That's a kind of long-distance run. And uh, God was with him, but I suspect that he could have run all that way in his own strength because he had witnessed the event that surely would turn the heart of Ahab, would turn the heart of Jezebel, to acknowledge that just on a sheer comparative basis, that's where the life was and that's where silence was. He was a uplifted, triumphant, and wet, I suspect, as he ran through the rain. Now at last, he thought the national life is going to change. Some of you will have uh, Netflix in your homes. We succumbed to the temptation a couple of months ago. It's very good for education. <laughs> Netflix is running a, a long series now called The Crown. It's a hundred episodes to entice all of you to join Netflix, and I'm on a commission. And uh, it's about the queen and her whole life. And we watched just one of the episodes, and many, much of the episodes describe the Queen or King George, her father, coming out onto the balcony of Buckingham Palace. And you know that scene, state occasions. And I think that as Ahab went to Jezreel, as uh, 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 Elijah went to Jezreel, to Ahab, to Jezebel, 
I think in his heart, he harbored the hope that he would be led out as God's prophet onto the balcony of the palace, the equivalent of Buckingham Palace, and Ahab and Jezebel would say, we worship Yahweh. I think that's what he was thinking. Surely after what God had done, her heart would be changed. Now let's read verses 19, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. After all that had happened, she is not moved one inch. She is as implacable as she ever was in her opposition to Yahweh. Now, that is too much for Elijah, and his hopes are dashed. He thinks the whole national life is going to turn. And to be fair, he has plenty warrant to think that. And yet he meets a wall of brass. Now, this is a really important lesson for us to learn if we are going to survive as churches, if we are going to survive as Christians. In the church, attempts to reform the church and bring back the authority of the Bible and the gospel meet with a great deal of opposition. All sorts of initiatives, prayers, training programs, and more prayers and initiatives and training programs have been tried in the United Kingdom in the last 50 years to bring back the gospel and the authority of the Bible in the churches. And they have been successful to a degree. But it would be fair to say that we are further back than we were 50 years ago. The matter of reforming the church is extremely hard. You think you have won a victory, and then you find you are back at square one again. It is desperately discouraging and desperately disappointing. I guess it's the same in our personal lives with indwelling sin, or in mine, the battle that comes around all the time. Three steps forward sometimes four steps backwards. Or what about youth work, those of you who do camps? You know, you go in a camp and some youngster comes and they're taken with the gospel and you agree as their tent leader or their small group leader that you'll write to them and the letters start and the letters dry up and then you write to them next year saying, will you come back to the camp? And some wonderfully do, but oftentimes nothing. Nothing. And you saw them at camp come alive to the gospel. Now, that's true of Christian ministry. It's true of the Lord Jesus. Think of the high point at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's baptized. The Spirit lands on him. God speaks to him. The heavens open. That's great. Immediately, he's in the desert being lashed with the worst temptations that Satan can throw at him for 40 days. Now, this passage here in 1 Kings 
and its application to the church about the, the wall of brass that is apostasy against the gospel is a warning that Satan will never, ever, ever give up to bring you down. And the question is, can we stand it? I think there is also in Elijah's heart a searching question. Think of, think of when he goes to Ahab and Jezebel starts hunting him down and, and she's not moved a, a, an inch. It's almost like, look, you cannot see any more striking evidence of the power of God than that. And she kind of goes, so? And Elijah is downhearted, but he's also questioning. I mean, if I were him, I'd be thinking, God, what on earth are you doing? Why, when you did that, haven't you opened our heart? Why will you not use this to turn your people back to you? Or in our context, why will you not turn the church around? Why will these initiatives to recover the authority of the Bible, why are they so frustrated? Why is planning a church in this country and I was chatting to some people who are doing it. So hard. Why? Why will God not just open the doors, provide the money, and make it happen? And I think there is, in Elijah's response, the reality of human discouragement and the questions about what God is, is doing. Let me quote to you from uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon uh, was a, a minister in the 19th century. He would have, is about as successful in the right understanding of that as any minister could be. He preached out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, just by Elephant and Castle Tube Station, if you would like to visit it. And uh, he wrote a series of lectures for his students. This one is called The Minister's Fainting Fits. Yeah. And everybody kind of makes a joke out of this lecture. And yet, Spurgeon suffered all through his life from acute spiritual and clinical and medical depression. And he writes this. As it is recorded that David, in the heat of battle, King David, waxed faint, so may it be written of the servants of the Lord, fits of depression come over the most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there, Men of steel, men of iron, to whom wear and tear work no perceptible detriment. But surely the rust frets even these in the end. And as for ordinary men, ordinary ministers, ordinary Christians like me, the Lord knows and makes them to know that they are but dust. Now, I think uh, that is not hyperbole. I think it's bang on the money. It's what it's like to be a Christian, a church, when it seems like there is darkness all around. 
And all that you seek and pray for seems to hit back with a wall of brass. Now, let me say this before we move to the second point. We need to be very careful here, and this is a big mistake in this passage, of concluding that Elijah is kind of feeling sorry for himself, woe is me, or lacks faith, or lacks confidence in God. If Elijah feels sorry for anyone in this passage, it's not him. If Elijah feels sorry for anyone, Elijah feels sorry for God, for God's cause, for God's glory. How do we know? Because of what God's prophet, Elijah, says. We should not stop believing what God's prophet says here because it's hard to hear. And he says it twice. Read with me chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. There he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and even I only am left, and they seek my life. What are the first words that come out of his mouth? I am jealous for the glory of God. And then he says it again, chapter 19, verse 14. Elijah's deep sense of discouragement and despair is born out of jealousy for God's reputation, his honor, and his glory. And I think a great question to ask of ourselves and the church in our culture or country today is, do we feel that? Do you feel the dishonor done to God? Does it keep you awake at nights? The seemingly relentless drift into darkness. Does it keep you awake at nights? Does it burn in your heart? The apostasy that seems to reign and rule in the church. If it does, well, it did for the Lord Jesus, who stood on another hill and looked out over the city, Zion, Jerusalem, and wept. Now, you can't manufacture that. It's a spirit-given thing. You can ask for it. And of course, part of the turning around of the church is when God's people begin to feel the darkness. Now, let's move to the second point and the encouragement God gave to Elijah and to us. Notice first God's graciousness towards Elijah. Uh, It's not the main point of the chapter, but it's there. Elijah is running for his life in verses 3 and 4. God sends an angel and gives him his tea, a meal. It is uh, delightful uh, to read. He has a sleep. He has another good meal, and he has another good sleep. And then the angel sends him on a walk. So he eats, he sleeps, and he has some exercise. Um, I I was listening to a a sermon from Dick Lucas. Some of you will know a kind of mentor to me in London. And Dick recalls a time when he was at Keswick. And a man called George Duncan was speaking, a great sort of worthy Scottish saint. And uh, in those days, missionaries from all over the world used to come to Keswick for the convention. And George Duncan got up on the platform and he said, I'd suggest that all the missionaries stop coming to the meetings and go and have a rest and a sleep and a walk in the hills. And uh, Dick uh, tells us in his sermon that the rest of the committee kind of shuddered. But there is some practical wisdom in that. I mean, Elijah needed food, he needed sleep, and he needed, well... The exercise bit is for another purpose. But let's not, let's not 
scorn the need of that in the Christian life. Now, God very graciously provides for him, and uh, God encourages us practically often, and he does it through people. People have done it to me over the years, and I thank God for the encouragement and the practical refreshment that is brought to us. But God has something else here. Look at uh, verse uh, 7. Read that with me, 19 verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched Elijah and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. That might ring an Old Testament bell. 40 days and 40 nights to where? Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of the Lord. See what's happening? God prompts Elijah to go on a journey to Sinai. And Sinai is the place where God comes to his people. It is the place of promise where God renews his covenant with his people. It is the place where God gives to his people his commands as to how they should live. And we read earlier the parallel passage from Exodus, or one of them, where God appeared to his people and gave them the Ten Commandments. We could equally have read Exodus 34, where the covenant uh, was renewed with the same signs of visible power. Now, what is going on? And I've kind of done this once already. Here's the second go at it. What's going on here is the writer of Kings. It's not just history. It's a message, a sermon he's preaching. God has brought Elijah in his discouragement at that point in the history of the people of God, when things were as tough as tough could be, as black as black could be, to the place, the mountain of promise, of covenant commitment, where God spoke in the past and said, everything will be fine in the end. That's what he said. And what had God said back in Exodus? Remember these words? God said, For I am a jealous God. I am jealous for my honor and my glory and my reputation. And back there in Sinai, there was wind and earthquake and fire. And here there is wind and earthquake and fire. We're back at Sinai. Moses, the people of God, sensing God's presence, hearing God's voice. But here in 1 Kings, it's obvious we're back there in our minds. God is not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. God is in the sound of a low whisper. Some of the older translations have the still, small voice of God. Some of you would have heard that. It's not really right. It's, it's a low whisper. And if I whisper to you now, what would happen is that you would not hear what I was saying. I think that's what it means. So what, what is this voice? And uh, here we go into like 1,000 options. I'll tell you the right answer. I don't know what the right answer is. How do I, how are we trying to find the answer? You're trying to find the answer from the context of where the Bible points you. Yeah? What is Elijah's answer to the question that has been put to him twice? Why are you here? The angel says to Elijah. Now, where is he? Top of this mountain. Why are you on Sinai? Answer one. Because I am jealous for the honor of God. Question two. Why are you here, Elijah? Because I am jealous for the honor of God. 
What did God say on the mountain when the fire, the wind, and the earthquake came in the Exodus? I am a jealous God. What is the whisper this breath meant to be? Well, it's meant to remind Elijah, I think, that what God has said in the past, and he wants Elijah to remember when Elijah comes out with that answer, I am jealous for the honor of God. He wants him to remember Sinai and remember God's words that Elijah might be jealous for the honor of God's glory. Elijah might be vexed that the walls of apostasy are like brass. But God is more jealous for the glory of God's own name and God will judge apostasy in the end. And the darkness will never, ever extinguish the flame that is the gospel and the kingdom. And it's a very wonderful moment, I think, for a Christian when they feel this darkness, or a church when they feel this darkness. And I, to be honest, in Scotland, as a minister, often feel the deep darkness and the despair of the walls of brass. Why is gospel vision so hard to execute? Why will... God not liberate his people to flock to prayer meetings? Why will God not liberate people's hearts to give for the work of the gospel in this country? And he is beginning to do that. Why will God not turn things around? Why will God not put a Christian politician in a senior position to speak publicly in the public square. Surely he can. And God says to Elijah, and he says to us, I am glad you are jealous for my honor, but I am more jealous than you. Trust me. Remember what I said. That's what's being conveyed by this whisper. And where do you and I go for encouragement as Christians, as the church? Not to Sinai, of course, but to another hill, to Calvary, to the cross, where the new covenant was sealed. And what are the words we are to hear? The words that we are to hear are, I guess, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the same kind of words as were given on Sinai. So do not be discouraged. Even in the darkest days, the light that is the gospel will not be extinguished. The light might flicker, but it will never die. And if our hearts are broken by the dishonor that is done to God and the relentless grip of apostasy on the church, then God's jealousy for his glory is greater, and apostasy will not prevail in the end because God, and one of the commentaries puts this so well, I think, God will judge like a hammer in the end but he is gracious relentlessly in giving his people time to repent. And what happens next in the story? We're nearly done. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, and, and you think of when he ran to uh, Jezreel in the rain, he could have run for miles and miles and miles, and he went from that to boom, the rock bottom, and now his heart is lifted up, 
you know, his heart is back to God. And, and God says to him, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint um, Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimishi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shephthah of I can't pronounce that word. You shall anoint him with a prophet in your place. And, and he went. And then, then he, God says, just one other thing. There's a remnant. You haven't seen them, but there are 7,000 people. You're not alone. You're not alone. Now, what's he saying here? Elijah is told to do what? He's told to anoint a king. Yeah? It is through a king that he will judge. Ahab, Jezebel, their time of judgment did come. Jesus, of course, the king, is the ultimate judge. And Elijah is also told to call a prophet, Elisha, who will carry on the word of the Lord after he has carried on. And what an encouragement it must have been to Elijah to say, you are not the last word. There's another prophet to come who will speak God's word. The character that we are left with at the end of 1 Kings is not Elijah, is not Elisha. The character is the word of God. God's Word will always be powerful. God's Word will break through. It will demolish walls that are impenetrable, as impenetrable as the wall that Elijah faced. And then that remnant of 7,000 people, Elijah didn't know they were there, but they were. There's a good lesson for us all. Do not think that you are alone. God knows what He's doing. So do not lose heart in the church in our country today. They are dark days spiritually. Last weekend, the clocks changed, helpfully, for my sermon. Darkness comes earlier. And I think it's fair to say that the spiritual clock has changed in our nation from summer to winter. It is dark. Apostasy seems to have an ever-tightening grip. It seems impossible to break. Breakthroughs come, but they come to nothing. Jesus Christ is on his throne he rules the church through his word. He is building his church, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. So do not lose heart. Pray that God will give you a jealous heart for his honor. Remember that God is jealous for his honor. And there is a remnant. There will always be a remnant. There will always be living churches. My hunch is that we will not see, and I hope I'm wrong, much of a turning of the tide in the next century. History would indicate that is true. But Jesus is not twitching or sitting nervously on his throne. He's sitting comfortably. And we are to take heart and to keep faithful. Now, you and I are not Elijah, and you and I are not Elisha. But there is a call that comes to us in our time to proclaim the word of the Lord and to pass that word on to the next generation. And the question I leave us with is this. Is the Lord calling you, perhaps, to play a part in all that? Let's pray. Father God, these are sobering passages in your word, but surely we see that they speak into the reality of our time. Help us, Lord, to face up to the darkness, and as we do so, we pray that you would lay upon our hearts a jealousy 
for your honor, for your glory, for the name of Jesus, for the progress of your kingdom in this country and these islands. We pray it for our city. And we pray, Lord, that we will never, ever lose heart because the living flame that is the gospel, the living flame that is the church, will never, ever go out from the true churches, the living churches. We pray to that end that you would keep us faithful and clear on the gospel, whatever we face. And when we hit the brick wall of apostasy in our evangelism, in our church life, or in our own bodies as we fight with sin, we pray, Lord, that you would take us to that hill where Jesus Christ died on his cross, and that as we stand beside it, we would remember that all that is evil and all that is apostate in the world has been defeated, and that Christ is no longer on that cross. He has risen and He reigns, and He is King and Lord of the church, and He is building His church, and He leads His church through His Word. So keep us thrilled to that living Word, we pray, and encourage us with the realism of Your Word. And if it pleases you, will you break through the darkness and turn things back to you? We ask all that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.